Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. And this one is dedicated to, at long last, at long, long, long last, <laughs> one of my favorite movies, let alone horror movies of the year. This year, this is year it was released in this country, as opposed to last year when it was released in most other countries. It is, of course, Christopher Landon's bloody, brilliant, and bloody brilliant body swap extravaganza, Freaky. Freaky, let's get freaky. Is that a song? I don't know. Anyway. I'm more partial to, because tonight, baby... I want to get, get freaky with freaky. you. I was going to lay down, I was going to lay down a bet how soon it would be until a monster is seeing another level's freaky and we're like minutes in, minutes in. Seconds. Seconds if you had in. A, if you had a secondary bet on me being able to name the band responsible for that song, then you would have been absolutely quids in. Another level. Another level. We always take it to uh, another level on the Empire Spoiler Special Podcast. Oh my God. Uh, anyway, as you've already heard, joining me to get extra specially freaky over this movie just in time for Halloween <laughs> are three of the finest scream queens and kings that I know. Ben Travis. Hello. Amon Warman. Hello. And this podcast's final girl. And first girl, but that doesn't get into it. Uh, Beth Webb. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. How are you all? It Good. Gets. Don't care. Before we get into the discussion of the film, let's hear from the film's director, Christopher Landon. Ben, do you remember speaking to Christopher Landon for the podcast? For the podcast? I have interviewed Christopher Landon like four or five times for this <laughs> film now. Um, from, its, from its first trailer to, yeah, we did a spoiler special and then I had to interview him again after the spoiler special from the perspective of people who haven't seen the film for our preview when it got delayed again. <laughs> At some point in there, I vaguely remember talking some spoilery stuff. Yeah. But it was a long time ago. I can exclusively reveal that we are recording this today on the 26th of October in the year of our Lord. 2021 and Ben you and I spoke to Christopher Landon for the spoiler special <laughs> last year on the 28th of October in the year of our Lord 2020 oh my goodness wow uh, because time? the film got pushed back Freaky got pushed way way back it was meant to come out in November of last year then it got pushed back to January then February then eventually came out around June in cinemas here just after the cinemas had opened post you know everything reopening uh, but we decided to hold it for the film's HE release HE being an industry term meaning of course home entertainment uh, DVD Blu-ray the whole ke- the whole kebab um, <laughs> Whole kitten kebab. <laughs> 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 Does anybody get in this movie? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of skewer in this movie. The whole kebab, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but of course, I know we're also holding it for Halloween. So, the interview may be a year old, but the sentiments expressed within haven't aged today. We had a lot of fun with Christopher Landon. He is one of the best, funniest, sharpest directors in the horror business. He also directed both Happy Death Days, in case you didn't already know. And hopefully you will enjoy this as much as Ben and I think, vaguely remember, doing too. (laughs) Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this very special spoiler special, I should stop saying special so often in these introductions, by, by the writer and director of Freaky, Mr. Christopher Landon. How are you, sir? I'm very, very good. How are you doing? Oh, you know, 
can't complain. It's all good. A couple of days before Halloween, few days before Friday the 13th, when your film is unleashed upon the world, you must be feeling pretty damn good right now. I think I'm feeling as good as one can during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, we just put that one side, the pandemic thing. Yeah, yeah. Apart from that, it's all good. Um, but yes, indeed. So I always like to start these spoiler specials uh, with the question that's on everybody's lips. And after seeing Freaky a couple of times now, I have to ask, Death by Tennis Racket, is that something that has been bubbling away in your head for a long, long time? No, it, it's funny. It hasn't. And I, when we were writing the movie, um, you know, the opening set piece obviously is set in a, at a, you know, in a f- fancy rich person's house. And so I always kind of start with like, okay, what's germane to the setting and what would we find there? And of course, you know, people have wine collections and they have tennis courts and things like that. So that's, that's where, um, that's where that sort of inspiration comes from for me. And, um, and yeah, the, the tennis racket thing. And sometimes I don't even know where these, these ideas come from. They just, there's like, I'll see an image in my head. And so we were, we were writing and I, I imagined a tennis court and then I just imagined him snapping one in half and jamming it into this guy's head. Um, and, and the, and the, and it's, and it works really well for me, that kind of thing, because it's funny. Um, because it's, it's, you know, goes from broken racket to like fixed racket. And I actually had written at one point and, and it was too complicated and expensive, but originally what I wrote was you hear a weird sound on the tennis court. And then you realize that someone has activated a ball machine. And so tennis balls are actually launching across the court and then the lights come on and the snap thing happens and he sticks the head, you know, the racket into the guy's head. And then in that moment, I was going to have a tennis ball go and hit the actual racket and bounce off and he was going to fall out of frame. Um, but I had to like pare it down, you know, because it was too, too much. Um, and then, and then Laura Rose, um, who's the, who's the, the D, the DP of the movie. Uh, I guess you guys say DOP or something like that. But he, uh, which by the way, everyone should say DOP because DP yeah. just, has a whole other connotation, um, but, does, actually, yeah. he, um, but he, uh, he also kind of came up with this idea of like, you know, this, the, the racket sort of filling our frame with blood trickling down and so forth. So um, it ended up in a good place. Um, but yeah, a lot of my kills, sometimes I come up with kills that are just like, they're awesome, but they're too elaborate and I have to kind of re rejigger them um, for scale purposes. The one that really struck me was the the bottle of vintage wine down the neck. That was like brilliantly gruesome, uh, especially it sort of smashes and splinters and there's blood everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Uh, where did? Where the hell does that come from? Where? Where in the back of your twisted mind does that come from? That was another one where I I um, was thinking about thinking about rich people, <laughs> um, rich people's wine collections. And, and a thing that I, I, I have a personal obsession with like real estate and like looking at houses I could never afford. Um, and cause I'm always sort of like, it's both horrifying and, and wish fulfillment where like, because there's such income disparity in the world. And especially I feel like here in America. And so I'll look at these houses and I'm like, this person has a fucking like wine bottle atrium in their house. Like, what is that thing? And so when I was writing 
the movie I um, imagined, you know, this this big cellar, and it was originally scripted as as just a massive wine cellar, and not like a, a place where a bunch of artifacts and old art and statues were were hidden. Um, and I just thought, fuck, man, someone crushing someone who has unbelievable strength like the butcher like someone ramming that down your throat and breaking your jaw and then smashing the bottle inside your throat would be super gruesome and that was literally where i was like i gotta try that and it was a really complicated one because it's a two-hander where we're like we're we're doing it practically and there's a sort of cg element because you can't sort of do it all um it was a tough one actually to to pull off but um it's a cool one Income disparity is the uh, is the new premarital sex in the slasher uh, rules. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, it's it's fascinating as well though because uh, this is a, a movie that is such a loving tribute to the slasher films of the of the eighties and the nineties. But thinking back on the butcher's kills, even when he even when he's in Millie's body, I don't think he kills anyone with a butcher knife the entire movie. It's always some other implement was that was that by design that was by design i felt like i mean i don't i didn't really see the fun in it anymore and i and tonally it didn't really seem to sort of line up you know if he just walked around like brutally he's stabbing people i think it's the wrong movie you know if i think back to sort of you know recently like the 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 you know the david gordon green version of of halloween and you know there's this great kill in that movie that happens um when this when this woman is looking out the window and he grabs her from behind and jams it through her neck and it's like super violent and gruesome but like that fits tonally for that movie so like murdering people with a knife is great our movie is ridiculous you know it's over the top and it's silly and it's stupid and crazy and fun and so for me the kills had to reflect the tone of what we were going for and so people like being frozen to death in a cryo chamber and shattered and, you know, people being mowed in half with a giant buzzsaw and, um, you know, a hook through the eye and, you know, all the kills are, are pretty, the only kill in this whole movie that feels like it has like genuine sort of, uh, visceral oomph, um, in the real world is actually, and this is big spoiler territory, you know, is the last kill, um, which is the one that, you know, when Millie sort of finally wins, Everything else is, yeah, it's designed to be, it's designed to be over the top in the way that I think, you know, like you look at Raimi and like Evil Dead 2, like all that violence and that gore was pretty cartoonish and it works. Even down to the different colors of, of the gore. Yeah. And I grew up on all this stuff. You know, I grew up on like, like gremlins, like the most memorable scene in gremlins was, you know, watching that old lady get thrown through a, a window in her, in her chair, in that staircase chair. So like, that's the stuff that I wanted for the movie, you know. I mean, you, you talked about the uh, the teacher being sawed in half. Did did you just like really hate your woodwork teacher or something? Was that like some past trauma you were trying to work out there? I think the whole movie is a past trauma. Uh, <laughs> sure, I, I Michael and I both, uh, my co writer, um, you know, Michael and I both were were shy, insecure, closeted gay kids in high school. And so, you know, we walked around for four years with big targets on our back and that's a real shared experience that we had together. And so the idea of us sort of being able to kind of exercise some of those demons and sort of give everyone their comeuppance in this movie was something that was really satisfying and fun for us. And I know that we both 
while I did not have a Mr. Bernardi per se, um, I definitely experienced versions of that. You know, not all teachers are good um, and nice, and a lot of them should not be teaching. And so it was kind of fun to 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 kill one of those people because um, some people are just dicks um, and they should be cut in half. Um, but that's Cameron from Ferris Bueller, for God's sake! I, I mean. And that was and that was deliberate and that was by design and really fun because and I remember when I told Vince Vaughn because he kept asking me like who's who's going to play this part who's going to do and so I said oh you know Alan Ruck is going to be is going to be Mr. Bernardi and he lost his mind and not even like a good way he was really upset he was like why would you do that why would you do that to Cameron like everybody loves Cameron I'm like yeah but I was like Vince what if Cameron just didn't turn the right corner and he grew up and he was became like his dad and he was just a fucking asshole. Like, there you go. And so it was, it was really fun getting to cast somebody who has such an iconic place in the, in the sort of teen comedy world, you know, like it couldn't have been a better bookend. I felt like. And it's interesting as well. I mean, uh, the, the people that Millie butcher, Millie butcher kills, uh, as you say, is you have a asshole bully teacher, you have a asshole bully influencer. There are the guys who uh, are trying to sexually assault her as well. There is the the guy who makes a pass at Josh and then immediately turns abusive. It feels in a weird way like there you've you've killed off the next generation of the GOP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I was actually just talking about this. I think that there's a certain, I think what, what's really satisfying for me about the movie right now is that like, it really does. Yes. It takes on bullies. Um, and, and I, and I think that if we're going to get a little political, like, you know, we, at least here in the States have been living daily with the ultimate bully. Um, and so, and it's been really painful because it has felt like, why do the bullies keep winning? You know, and that's how it's felt for the last four years. And so it was really satisfying to have an, an opportunity to put the bullies in their place um, and kind of say to the world, like, you can be, a, you can be a bully and be an asshole, but you're, you're not going to, you're not going to win. So I really enjoyed that, that part of the movie. Um, Cause bullies suck, you know, and, you know, they should get, they should get it. They really do. And I know, I know we've obviously talked an awful lot about the, the deaths and the kills so far. I promise we're going to talk about some of the character stuff in a second as well. But it all comes in, it all boils down. There's a, that lovely speech that uh, Fintz has in the back seat with Booker, where he talks about feeling empowered in his body and, you know, being bullied all his slash her life. I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and there's moments in this movie, there's a scene, that scene, there's a scene with um, uh, with uh, the butcher slash Millie and Millie's mom in the in the clothing store in the discount Bonanza. And, you know, where the emotion really comes through. Mm-hmm. Was that important to you? It's, it's, it's the most important thing to me, actually. Um, I mean, I could, I could come up with creative kills all day long. Um, and I feel like the movies would have little to no value if I didn't find some sort of emotional anchor, um, and a personal kind of journey and a story for the main character to have. And a lot of, 
the stuff that goes into my movies is really personal stuff. And I, and I, you know, you know, in happy death day one and especially in happy death day two, um, I was really wrestling with grief. Um, you know, I lost my dad when I was 16 and then my mom passed away a few years ago. My mom actually passed away two years before I made happy death day two. Um, and so I'm always like working shit out in my movies. And Michael had also experienced the, the loss of his father before, before we wrote this movie. So I, yeah, I mean, it's funny too, because typically and traditionally um, you don't put stuff like that in horror movies. You don't put, you don't put things like that in, in a, especially in a horror comedy, but I, I've learned to give myself permission to be a little bit emotional um, in these movies. And I've found that it really pays off. I think that people are surprised by the feelings that they end up having in these movies and how they relate to the characters. And, um, um, and that I think it just makes them feel a little less disposable. Uh, so it's mm. really important. It's really important to me to, to do that stuff. And the movie I'm writing right now, I I'm kind of, you know, really digging into sort of the whole father, father, son dynamic and how complicated those can be. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, I'd like to start from that, from a place of, of, of emotionality and, and character. Vince is really great in that scene. He's great in the whole film, but I think those moments, um, where he gets to really, yeah, dig into the dramatic stuff are, are really great. What was it like evolving that scene with him thinking, especially about the, yeah, the scene in the, in the changing room? Yeah, it was interesting because Vince was very trusting. Um, and he would say it a lot to me. He's like, I really trust you. I really trust your taste. So this is why I'm kind of, I'm going along with, with you. Um, and I remember when we were shooting the dressing room scene and he had acknowledged in rehearsals and, and in conversations before that he knew that it was an important scene. Um, and then we, we did one of the first takes and he, he got emotional. Um, and then as soon as we cut, he ran over to me and he was like, don't use that. Don't use that. It's, I don't know what happened. I, and I was like, hold on a second. Like what you just did is exactly what I wanted. Like you felt what Millie's feeling. Like you have to have emotional honesty in that scene. Otherwise it doesn't work. And it was really interesting, but he, because his reaction was, but, but we're making a comedy. Like, what if it's too much of a downer? And I said, it won't be too much of a downer. It's just going to make people fall in love with that character even more because she's finally she finally has an opportunity to tell her mom how she really feels, you know, and she's only doing it because she's using someone else's voice. And it's a great scene because they both have this exchange that's so cathartic and, and they learn so much about each other in such a short amount of time. And it really speaks to sort of the idea of like how we all carry all of these feelings for, for people that we're so close to, but we're afraid to tell them um, because we're afraid of hurting their feelings. And so it, it is an emotional scene. And I was really, it was just funny to me how he was so nervous about it. And then when he finally saw the movie, he got it. And he was mm -hmm. like, you were, you were right. Like, I'm really glad that I allowed myself to go there. Cause he really is that kind of an actor. He's, he's not just like, I'm a funny guy. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of people who haven't seen some of his other work sort of just think he's like Vince Vaughn, the like comedy guy. And He's a serious actor. And when he gets into a role, like that's, that's, that's like, those are real tears. That's real feeling that, that he's having and he's experiencing. And so I was grateful that he allowed himself to go there. The, on the flip side of that performance as well, 
one of my favorite things in the whole film is Vince Vaughn's scream. Can you t- tell me about the process of Vince Vaughn getting to that that girly scream? It's so great. He gets to do it a few times in the film and it's killer every time. It's it's awesome. Like again, I don't think any of that was it wasn't anything like we didn't sit and like have a scream practice. Um, you know, <laughs> where I was like, imitate like a girl screaming. I think it was all about I think we had done enough homework leading up to filming that. Um, there were just certain things that felt natural. And one of those things was like, he did speak and scream in a slightly higher sort of register in his voice. And, but for me, it was more the mannerisms. I mean, he really got, there were things that were very scripted or things that we worked on, like a lot of his nail biting, because I wanted him to really sort of be able to understand Millie's anxiety, her insecurities and so forth. But there were little things like, there's a there's a moment where it's the car scene with Booker and Booker asks if he can come in and sit in the back with her, which was all stuff that, you know, we had scripted and worked on. But like as he's coming around to the move to the back seat, Vince did this like like moment with his hands where he says to himself, oh, my God, I realize this is radio um, <laughs> podcast. So no one saw me. Um, but like that was Vince. And it was so great because like he so understood how a teenage, how it feels when you like somebody and they acknowledge it suddenly. And you're like, Oh shit, this is real. It's going to happen. He's going to come sit next to me. Um, and there's such universal feelings and he's really good at, he understands people that way. And I love that. I was actually going to talk about this scene as well, because I, I love that, that, that wonderful subversion of Booker and Millie's first kiss. Yeah. That scene was, it was the most important scene in the movie to me because it's the first it's the first scene where I feel like where Millie as the character feels completely seen by someone, you know, um, that, that, that this person that she has always had a crush on, um, and liked is looking past the exterior because he genuinely cares for the person that's underneath it. And so it's, it's, it's on this, I think on the surface, it was a scene that could have easily played for just laughs, you know, like, oh my God, two dudes kissing, you know, and especially like a big older guy, like it, it could have easily veered into like weird pervy territory, you know, like, um, I mean, it is, he is an, an older guy kissing a, a young, young guy in a car. Um, but I, I wanted to approach it and shoot it like a, like a romantic scene. And so like we lit it that way and you know i made it this like we made it this two shot that has a very slow push um and so and it's scored romantically so like we're playing it straight um and i think that's why the scene feels special and why it works so well because like you know before this whole pandemic thing happened and we shut down not to bring up a sore subject again um sorry (laughs) debbie downer um but i got i had one opportunity to test the movie um, with an audience in a theater. Um, remember that? So weird. And we, um, that scene was coming and I was like, I was really nervous because I thought, oh, what if people just like cat call or make fun of it or, you know, like just laugh at it, you know? Um, and what blew me away was how you could hear a pin drop at first. Um, and then when people realized that it was going down, there was this rumble of energy and excitement. And then when the kiss happened, the whole theater broke out in applause. And it was so cool because I realized, oh, they get it. Like, it's not just a joke to them. It's funny, 
but they also are cheering and clapping because they wanted these two people to kiss, you know, and it does play on a bunch of different levels, but it felt like, you know, it, it, it just was a scene that worked really well for me. Absolutely. And we've, we've got about eight minutes left, so I'm going to speed round quite a lot of questions. I've got uh, yeah. so much stuff to ask you still, Chris, but um, the, the butcher himself is fascinating and your approach to the butcher in the movie is fascinating. We get to know Millie, we get to spend time with Millie initially, but we don't really know, even at the end of the movie, we don't know a lot about him, his name, we know where he lives. We know there's an old guy who is offered to suck a stick for drugs. <laughs> we, we, we know that. Um, and we know he's got a pretty big piece as well. You know, the, the sound effect of Finn's slapping was in the toilet. Was that? Who was the foley artist that day? What was going on? But <laughs> but um, we don't know an awful lot about the butcher himself by the end of the movie. Uh, clearly, a deliberate ploy on your part. Yeah. It was deliberate. I felt like, you know, given the given the kind of movie that we were making and the sort of pace that I was uh, trying to achieve, um, I knew that we really didn't have any real time that we could dedicate to like a proper backstory for for the butcher. Um, and and I don't think ultimately it mattered, you know, in sort of the similar way that like sometimes like in a good in a good zombie film, it doesn't really matter like what caused the outbreak. It's that the outbreak happened. And in the case of The Butcher, what we knew we wanted was a serial killer that was almost an avatar, like almost like just sort of a, a, an amalgamation of so many classic horror movie killers. It's like you, we check the boxes, like we've got the iconic mask, you know, he's a silent killer, he's determined, um, he's a stalker. Um, so we had all those things and I think they all mattered. What's interesting about it though, is that his personality um does come through subtly as the movie evolves you start to see that he has a bit of a kind of a he's intelligent um and he's sneaky um and there's a really great scene in the movie um where you know um Catherine Newton who's at that point playing the butcher is tied up um and she's you know in the caught in the middle of a moment between Misha and or uh, of Joshua and his mother and she's kind of commenting on what he's saying with her eyes and with her grunts and stuff. And so you do start to kind of feel this butcher's personality emerging. And he's a bit of a kind of like a sneaky, sarcastic dick. And he certainly is opinionated and, and has some really good lines. Um, and some of them didn't make like, you know, we had one line in the movie that got cut out because it was, I mean, first of all, Catherine hated it. She really didn't want to say it. Um, but there was a scene in the movie where um, Mr. Bernardi, the shop teacher, calls Millie out for, um, f- as he sees it, flirting with Booker. Um, and he says, you know, God damn it, Millie, if you'd only spend, you know, a little more time learning and less flirting, you might make something of yourself. And we actually shot a bit where the butcher gets up in Millie's body and walks up to his desk. And she says, if you talk to me like that again... I'm going to tear off your tiny unused dick and face fuck you until your eyes bleed jizz. Um, and, and Catherine was like, we were shooting the scene and she looked at me and she's like, I just, I can't say that. <laughs> and I'm like, but you're not you, you're the butcher. The butcher would say that. Um, and ultimately it, it did, it felt too much a bridge too far but it was an opportunity to kind of show like that this this butcher has a real way with words <laughs> yes 
And, and were there any, obviously they, they have the big confrontation at the end of the film as well, but were there any other scenes between the two of them? No, we didn't. There weren't any other. The only, we had a sequence that we cut out of the movie. Um, and I think it'll be on the, whatever, if it's a DVD thing or a VOD, thing, I don't know. It'll be some direct, you know, air quotes, director's cut of the movie. That's, I mean, but there were things I willingly cut out for pacing issues, but there was this, there was a bit where like they run out of the police station together after the butcher has stolen the Dola back and they run to Joshua's car and his car doesn't actually, his car doesn't start. Um, and, and then they have to wait for an Uber. Um, and then they end up getting in this, this, this very religious woman's car and she's the slowest and worst driver in the world. And so like, it's this mad urgency to get to this place and she won't go any faster. And then she and Josh have a fight. Like he, they get into it and she kicks them out of the Uber in the middle of nowhere. And then they're left to walk the rest of the way. So it was sort of like, I thought I was playing with something fun that was like, oh my God, the situation's bad. Now it's gonna get even worse. Um, but it actually just, it killed the momentum of of that part of the movie and so we we lifted it but it's a there's, it's a pretty funny scene so i guess people will see it look forward to that you mentioned before about um paying homage to the the structure and the whole feel of slashes obviously you have the moment where they swap back and you think the butcher's dead but of course he's not he comes back for one last kill um were there debates on actually killing the butcher at that point were there moments where you thought about leaving him in in millie's body when you think that that switch is permanent we had a lot of different thoughts on it. And originally when Michael and I were writing the script, at one point we thought, okay, now wait, is this an opportunity to like bounce into someone else's body and surprise the audience? So it's like, oh, you think everything's fine, but actually Josh got stabbed and now he's in Josh and then Josh shows like, so, but it became like a rabbit hole where we were like, wait, we can't get, out of this. This is too fucking complicated. Um, and, but what we both knew and wanted was that we needed Millie to win in her body. Um, that felt important as sort of a, as a completion to her character's arc. Um, and so that was something that we, that I really strongly wanted for the movie. Um, what was interesting was that when we first showed the movie to our producers and to the studio, they kind of, they got, I think I did something really well in Happy Death Day. Um, and I don't often do things well. Um, but I had a really funny ending in Happy Death Day. And so everybody was like, that's what you do. You're the funny ending guy. And so when they saw this movie, they were like, that's not funny. Like, what the fuck? Like, that's, it's violent and like kind of serious. And then, you know, um, and so they actually wanted me to just lop it off. Um, they, they actually reached a point where they thought the movie should just end outside the warehouse um, with a kiss. Um, and I, I had so many fights with people about it because I was like, I will set my body on fire and throw myself off a bridge if you make me cut that off. Because I just was like, what is the point of this movie if she doesn't win in her body? Like, I don't, I don't even get it. And so eventually my tantrums um, prevailed uh, and I got to keep it. And I think it works. I do. Um, I think it's a satisfying ending. It's not a jokey ending, but it's the right ending for me. Um, 
So, you know, you look at a movie like, um, you know, uh, uh, The Mist, and it's like, I mean, no, nobody at a studio watched the end of that movie and was like, yeah, <laughs> that's how you close that movie out, motherfuckers. Um, but it was the right ending. Precisely. And you do finish with a great line. I am a fucking piece. Yeah. And it was a great callback to sort of where she was. It literally is the perfect bookend because when she says that line the first time, she's saying it because she doesn't believe that for a second. She has zero confidence in herself. And when she says it a second time, she fucking means it. And I love that. Um, and I felt like that's that's kind of the empowerment that, that you know, the character needs to go out on. Um, you know, and then I got to like, you know, create a cool song with an Australian girl band. And that was the other sort of highlight of finishing the movie. Um, that's a song at the end of the movie. That's by a, a group called Haiku Hands. Um, and they're badass. And I, I literally love them and approach them. And I was like, will you please write a song for this movie? <laughs> I've got just a super quick one. We're, we're we're basically out of time, but you mentioned Happy Death Day there. I love those movies. By the end of this film, La Dola is still out there. There's a line. Hope nobody gets their hands on that thing. Are you looking to do more freaky? Could you see? I know you've hinted at the possibility of a Happy Death Day and freaky crossover being in the same universe. What are you, what are your plans there? I have no plans. Uh, <laughs> I have zero plans. I have. I, I mean, look, we've had a plan for our, for the third Happy Death Day. Um, and it's something I've really wanted to make for a while. And I hope we still get to. And Jessica Roth and I talk about it quite a bit. In terms of like a crossover or even a freaky sequel, like I won't even touch that or go there because it's I'm superstitious and it's it's really bad luck. And I don't want to assume that, you know, this movie is going to succeed enough to warrant that. Um, and I think part of that's too is sort of like PTSD from Happy Death Day too, because I think we all felt really we were really proud of that movie um, and thought like that the third movie was in the bag and then, and then it wasn't. Um, so I learned my lesson there for sure. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens with this movie. Well, Chris, we could talk to you all night about this movie. You've got so many questions. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, for example, was the hidden a big influence that all, all that sort of stuff. But, uh, but uh, cause there's a, that, that red jacket feels very hidden to me. I, I don't know what it is, but, uh, but you've made a movie that is, as much fun, if not more fun, than the Anna's Theatre production of Wicked. So, <laughs> thanks very much indeed, man. That's my cameo in the movie, by the way. Is it? Yeah, the announcement on that commercial is me. Amazing stuff. On that note, a great note in which to end. Chris, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank <laughs> you so much indeed. All right. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Chris. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. That was Christopher Landon. Uh, I hope it was good. There's probably some good stuff in there, I think. <laughs> Yeah, good stuff. I'm quite looking forward to listening back to it. <laughs> I tend to listen back to these interviews. I think it was good. It was, it was so fun, long. though. Yeah. I remember making jokes and being quite fun and insightful about uh, lots of stuff, like the film's thematic preoccupations. But anyway, listen, he's had his crack. Now it's our turn. Let's dig deep into the film that started life genuinely as Freaky Friday the 13th. And it doesn't disappoint. I'm going to say that this is better than the actual Freaky Friday either of them. 
I didn't realise I was coming after a beloved classic. I, but you're speaking to people who grew up in the Lindsay Lohan generation. We were there in what 2003 was it? Same year as Mean Girls, I think. That oh, was just a my luck. Canon sleepover film was Freaky Friday, the Jamie Lee Curtis, Lindsay Lohan. I know every word to the. We're going off piece rapidly here, but I know every word quicker to, than usual. In fact, every word to the like final song in that film that they they play. Do you still know every word to the? Um... I mean, we're not going to do it now. But mm. again, as I say, rapidly off piece. But it's important to stress that they are different films i would not at all say that this is this is better than freaky friday i'm getting quite upset right now (laughs) (laughs) although jamie lee curtis's uh appearance in freaky friday the 2003 one really makes me wish for some kind of like halloween freaky friday crossover with laurie strode swapping bodies oh man there's something in there I mean, they're Blumhouse now. There has to be some sort of multiverse scenario where we have a Jamie Lee Curtis freaky sequel. A freakquel, if you will. A freakquel. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be so good. Like, so like you guys didn't see the um, you know post credit scene of Freaky, you know, had Laurie Strode come to Captain Newton's house and say, you know, we're putting the team together. You yeah. get to join. Yeah. We could, we could, we could, oh, you could have so many possibilities. You could have Michael Myers swapping bodies with Mike Myers. Oh, it would be. <laughs> On the set of The Love Guru. On the set of The Love Guru. Oh, my God. Michael Myers bellowing, do I make you horny, baby? Oh, that would be Gosh. just tremendous. Whereas Austin Powers is now a silent killer. Oh. Anyway, let's get back on piece. Back on piste. So I, you know, okay. Controversial statements aside. <laughs> thank, thank God I didn't say that my other theory about this being better than any of the Friday the Thirteenth movies, because that would have really put the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, anyway, controversial theories aside, this is such a great high concept, fun premise. I think we all had this movie in our heads, especially knowing who it was coming from, the director of both the Happy Death Day movies, which are just tremendous high concept fun. I think we all had this movie in our head. The trailer was fantastic and I was really, really looking forward to it. Thankfully, a couple of maybe ill-judged moments aside, I thought this absolutely delivered. I think this is absolutely terrific. What about what about you guys? Yeah, I, I mean, it, yeah, it rests on these two central performances, doesn't it? Vince Vaughn, who I'm really enjoying at this stage of his career, this kind of curb your enthusiasm, also viscery violent like stage of his yeah. career. Um, curb stomp your enthusiasm, I think you'll find <laughs> in the, the phase he's in right now. He's gone full kebab. Is that, is that <laughs> Vince Vaughn has gone full kebab. And then Catherine Newton, who I really adored in the film Blockers, another yes. uh, of, of a new generation sleepover canon film, um, really <laughs> really adored her in this and and I think it's no easy feat to bring comedy to this role while also embodying the mannerisms of a serial killer believably as as what is outwardly a very feminine young performer and she really steps up to Vaughan and and holds her own against him in this way so yeah two both wonderfully comedic performances that can also be pretty scary but I mean it's it's ultimately Vince Vaughn's film like he goes just balls to the wall with this performance and has the most fun with it I think and so yeah performance but led on performance I think the concept is great but obviously well worn although I do like that it really does wear its references on its sleeve but the two performances in this are just stellar I love them agreed I think I think Vaughn is fantastic you're absolutely right to bring up this this phase of his career where when he started off when he started off in swingers as trent he was 
amazing in that film. And then Hollywood didn't seem to know what to do with him for a while. They tried to plug him into different things. Weirdly enough, I think they plugged him into Psycho too early, mm. which is weird because he has this lanky, loquacious quality to him, which which worked really well in the comedies he made in the mid two thousands. That likes you know Dodgeballs and your Fred Clauses, Hello Fred Claus. You know all uh, that's a weird Vince Vaughn movie to say, but I couldn't think of anything else. But uh, <laughs> the wedding, wedding crashes, <laughs> wedding crashes. That's the one. Yeah, the one everyone saw, as opposed to Fred Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, listen, I've gone half kebab and I don't, I, don't, I, don't know what's, I don't know what's happened to me in this podcast. Desperate anyway. to make that phrase work on your credits. <laughs> Stop trying to make full kebab happen. <laughs> and, uh, so he, he, what he's done over time is he has filled out a little bit and he's aged, obviously, as we all do. But it is important to not lose sight of the fact that Vince Vaughn is a fucking big unit. He is six foot five inches. He absolutely could destroy everyone in this podcast chat room type thing if he were so inclined thankfully he's not but you know he could be even a candidate for reacher if you were going to go down that route he has the physicality to make something like the blissfield butcher work and so plugging him into films like like this and dragged across concrete and brawl in cell block 99 in which he's terrific work really really well because of that late blooming physicality of his yeah, he, he's awesome in this. Uh, to be honest, I don't know who's having more fun, Vince Vaughn or Catherine Newton, because it seems like she is <laughs> relishing getting to play the, the sort of stone-cold serial killer running around revving chainsaws <laughs> and being splattered in blood and all of that stuff. And I love that about body swap movies. Like, it's such a beautiful high concept of, thematically, there's always something of what is learned between these two characters or between one character in particular when they have this transformative experience. But the chance for two actors to get to usually play a version of themselves, something that is their usual archetype, and then get to play the exact opposite. You need those extremes for the body swap to work. And it does that really nicely in this. I remember seeing the trailer for Freaky because we got an email saying do you want to do a, a trailer breakdown interview with Christopher Landon uh, for his new untitled Blumhouse movie? So we didn't get told what the film was, didn't know the title, didn't know the concept. I watched the trailer and I just could not believe it was like such a good idea, such a clean, sharp, fun and funny idea. I could not believe yeah. that no one had done it. And as soon yeah. as you see that trailer, as soon as you hear that concept, you're like, where has this been all my life? Yeah. <laughs> Especially from the guy who did the Happy Death Day movies. Like, mm. I, I, I'm, I really love that that Landon is sort of excavating this niche for himself at the moment of just doing really fun, high concept comedy horror. Uh, this one leans more towards mm. the horror, which I like as well because it's pretty bloody and nasty. Um, but he, he it's still he, pretty he, funny, I would say. It's, it's really funny. Um, but I, I think compared to the Happy Death Day movies, which I, I do love, and I still think maybe Happy Death Day to you is my favorite of these sort of three films in his uh little kind of this little bubble in his career but freaky i i really like the fact that they went r-rated with this one they went gory they get to indulge in some of that splatter whereas obviously the the happy death day movies really really fun and do the slasher thing nicely but they're they're kind of not in a mean way they literally are kind of bloodless they are pg-13 movies so uh it, it was fun to see them kind of yeah let rip with this one. Cut loose a little bit. Uh, Amon, as Empire's resident scaredy cat, <laughs> where, where did you stand in this movie? Can I just say, you know, Beth is also a scaredy cat. And on the first street pod, we established that we have a band called Scaredy Cats United. 
Uh, I want to announce that our first single, Why Didn't You Run, is coming out very soon. Be on the couple. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, I, I really like this movie. It, it doesn't sort of reinvent the wheel, but it knows what it wants to be and it maximizes its concept to the fullest. And I love movies like that. Everything you say about the performances is spot on. And it is gruesome and there are some gory kills, but this is my favorite type of horror movie in that it's not very scary, but it's a really good time. And I like movies like that. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I, I rented the movie last night and wanted to rewatch it in preparation for this. I've seen it a couple of times, but it had been a, a few months. So I wanted to revisit it. And my wife, drinking game, really doesn't like horror films at all. Like, yeah, it, in our in the course of our long relationship, we uh, I've maybe got her to see three, maybe four horror films over over that time. Just can't do it. I said, oh, that's much freaky. It'll be fun. Very It'll understandable, can I just say. No, I you know, totally, totally get it. But she was like, well, what, what is it? And I said, wow, it's a serial killer swaps bodies with a teenage girl. It's really fun. It's great. It's, great. it's a real ride. And she's like, okay, okay. It's not, it's not scary. It's not, I'll be fine. It's not scary. And we sat down, we, we put it on, and the opening scene came on, and I had forgotten the opening scene. <laughs> and I was like, and I, I stopped it immediately after like, 10 seconds and I was like by the way <laughs> this gets gory and she was like how gory and I went mm, pretty gory but should we give it a go okay let's give it a go so we put it on play 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 and then we get up we don't even get to the point where the Blissfield Butcher inserts the wine bottle into the kid's oh. mouth <laughs> just the suggestion of it happening was enough for Fowler to go nope I'm out. <laughs> We're done. That's it. And I was like, actually, yeah, because I was thinking, oh yeah, there's a bit with the tennis racket. Oh, and then there's a bit with the girl being impaled on the on the pole. Yep. Oh, and then there's the bit with Alan Ruck being sawed in two. And then yep. there's the chainsaw. And it, yeah, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, of course, in a in a move that we we didn't go quite go full Alanis, but we stopped watching Freaky and started watching Only Murders in the Building. <laughs> and there's a bit there's a bit now like in the first twenty minutes where a guy is lying dead on the floor and his face is all mashed up because he's been shot and we're just happily watching that. I was like, how is that any different from what we just watched especially when the tone is quite comedic but yeah. you know but hey ho a lot of people can relate but but with this one that's what I like about it because it is it, it, it does go to some pretty intense places but it it's always feels like in a fun and playful way like even that opening massacre has some pretty nasty stuff in it but the, the tennis racket either sides of the head mm. is is like a funny like weird kill and it's as you mentioned such a good kill that it's it's the the wine bottle in the neck is my favorite kill in this whole film oh. it comes up super oh. early in the movie but that was something where I was like oh my god I've never seen this before it's really fucked up he rams for anyone who hasn't seen it in recent memory but he rams the wine bottle down that kid's neck and then smashes it so that all the shards like spurt out of his neck and then he's bleeding out that is out of context this conversation is wild (laughs) it's just listen it's just four friends sitting around having a great time talking about murder that's all it is fun murders but it it, it feels fun murders what's the funnest murder you've ever seen all the things that we're talking about though like the, the, the chainsaw and hooks it's playing with familiar horror iconography but also coming up with sort of fun slightly wacky inventive kills in its own right as well and yeah. that's part of as, as Amon said the the funhouse element of this that I, I just not, love not Pat Sharp's funhouse we should absolutely <laughs> point that out 
It's a, it's a real crazy show where anything goes, but not quite that much. I would like yeah. to see that. I will try to say Blumhouse's Funhouse, but the twins <laughs> that used to go around the obstacle course. But like, oh my god, yes, but it's, it's full of entrails. Yeah. Instead of instead of a ball pit, it's just brains and and awful. Let's get Jason on there. Jason on the blower. Which Jason? Furhees or Blum? <laughs> Jason Blum. <laughs> Okay, Jason. That the one makes with the money. We go to the one with the money. <laughs> yeah, you don't go to Jason Voorhees for financial backing for your movies. <laughs> you go to him for a machete in your face. Uh, mm. No, but yeah, you're right. Funhouse would be in, in live and considered to be by terrible murders happening in every single episode. Um, is Pat Sharp's knife as sharp as his surname? We could, we could figure it out. Anyway. Yeah, the opening of this movie I thought was absolutely terrific in terms of kind of setting that sort of comedic, parodic bar whilst also having its gory cake and eating it. I have to say, within that opening sequence, the wine bottle gag is really fun. A, a treatise in the dangers of drinking. The film has a that little theme running all the way through it, doesn't it, a little bit? But it's a tennis racket one for me. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen anything like the tennis racket one. I'm not sure that would work logistically, that you could actually do that. But the fact <laughs> he snaps a wooden tennis racket in two and then kind of reattaches it using someone's head as a conduit, that's just inspired butchering. Well done, Mr. Blissfield Butcher. And it's the comedic timing with that as well. It's literally beat, snap, beat through the head. And the kid, love him, doesn't know, doesn't even register what, what, what's happened. It's just yeah. bam, bam, bam. I love it. I love it yeah. so much. It's almost like slapstick, but... It, oh, it's, it's beautifully timed. Also, his last words uh, on this earth are, how about a handy? Uh, what a way to go oh dear you don't get that in Funhouse (laughs) so let's talk about the rest of the movie in terms of that we'll we'll get on to you know the the thematic elements that are going on here there's there's something deeper going on and freaky obviously but fuck it it's a horror film let's talk about people killing each other what else in the rest of the movie what about the bit where Cameron from Ferris Bueller gets absolutely eviscerated that's a good moment we like that I think the the moment where, where Connavoy, aka Anorak, gets split in two was impressively grisly. Um, that sort of reminded me a little bit of the bread kill in Anne First Street, which we all sort of, you know, loved. Uh, probably the best kill in, in that series of films. <laughs> People being shoved yeah. into slicey, heavy machinery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a real thing this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we're into it. That character, I don't know if I'm just coming to expect more from the characters in horror films now. I don't know, I'm getting a little bit fond of them. I think that horror writing is leaning a lot more into slightly more, you're all furrowing your brows, which is very funny. I no, don't know. I was I, not fond of, I was not fond of just, that character. But this there was is no what like, I mean. oh no, he died. It's like, oh yes, he died. Yeah. More, more please. But there was... <laughs> I think we get quite dropped into his story where he's just a, a, a raging, inexcusable piece of shit. And we don't yeah. really know why. Like, he comes in so... A woodwork teacher, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> but instantly from the off, you know, Catherine Newton's character, Millie, comes in. And when we meet her, she's quite introverted. She's got a little gaggle of friends, but she's not... She's sort of an outsider. And she comes in and she's a little bit late. And Adam Ruck's character rains down on her. Like, she's just killed his immediate family. Which, I mean... <laughs> To be fair, she would do in the second half of the film, probably if she could. But mm. when she drops in, it's just instant villainy. And, and you're not quite sure why, other than he's just an excusable, egregious piece of work. 
Um, maybe I just haven't had a bad wood teacher in my year. Chris seems quite haunted <laughs> by his, so maybe he's just... Uh... <laughs> I had a bad one as well. I, the only detention I ever got in school was from my DT teacher, and I literally, genuinely wasn't doing anything wrong. I was a proper oh, little yeah. goody two-shoes. <laughs> and he just he picked on me, and he gave me a detention, and I did nothing. And uh, yeah, didn't like him. Can't remember his name. Yeah, the only thing I built in my woodwork class was an exact replica of my woodwork teacher's house, um, complete <laughs> with a set of traps showing how I would torture him. But he didn't seem to take kindly that he put me in detention. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. All of, of you guys were rebels. My goodness. <laughs> so everyone else was cheering for the, the spirit of their youth, for the wrong. And Alan Ruck was sawing in half. You guys were like, do it again. <laughs> well, it's, it's the ultimate expression of where, I mean, as, as, let's be honest, Ferris Bueller would end up in the Trump cabinet. There's no question about that. Or he would be Trump's <laughs> chief of staff, or he may even be a mini Trump himself, the uh, you know, detestable, punchable piece of shit that he is. Cameron, though, I mean, this feels to me like, if you know Ferris Bueller, it feels to me like this is the ultimate kind of pessimistic view of where he might end up, because he's got so much potential, hasn't he, at the end of that mm. movie, and he's got so much to give. And then you could you could imagine him all that that fire slowly dimming and slowly dying and him ending up here as a as a teacher who is just full of nothing but spite and rage and bile and just takes out the students. And yes. as we saw, lots of red stuff filled with lots of red stuff that went everywhere. Lovely, mm-hmm. lovely, gooey red stuff. Oh, <laughs> so good. I mean, no, um, the Empire Podcast does not condone lovely, gooey <laughs> red stuff or murder. We don't con- we don't condone murder, right? I think we draw the line just before, yeah. Though. We draw the line. We draw the line. I should have talked illegal before this. Podcast. Just before murder, get HR on. Get really HR on. Um, is this is this an interesting little wrinkle that the movie does? Where whenever the Blissfield Butcher is in Millie's body, the people that they kill as they as they're going around the school, they're essentially the, the butcher's essentially writing some wrongs here and going a bit vigilante and. Killing people who, I'm not saying they deserve it, no one deserves it, all right? Again, I've been told by legal to make that very, very clear. But, you know, Ryler, the dreadful school gossip slash influencer, gets killed. Dreadful teacher, all those bullies at this sort of prom, homecoming type thing. They all get what's coming to them. They all deserve it. All of them deserve to die. Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. Uh, so what do you think about that aspect of the film? I think that's a really clean part of what this body swap is all about. We kind of mentioned when you do those body swaps, there has to be some kind of thematic underpinning to it. And I think that element of it is that people constantly underestimate Millie. She She's a young woman, and people just look at her and underestimate her or treat her kind of badly. And so I think that's quite an interesting part of the swap that at the start of the film, the the, bu- the butcher in his own body is doing the typical slasher thing of going after the horny, drunk teens who are getting up to mischief that they shouldn't be. And then when that switch happens, it's a chance to kind of fight against some other... I mean, in our society now, people aren't asked if you're going off having sex and taking drugs and doing whatever. It's fine. Just be responsible. Whereas... It's actually pretty cruel seeing people picking on Millie and seeing people just completely underestimate her in every way. So the chance for the butcher in that body to actually kind of fight against something that's 
bad. Obviously, not condoning the murders, but I, I, I think that's an interesting update of that formula, of the typical slasher formula, uh, of what those killers are usually fighting back against or avenging. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. And I think it sort of goes both ways in terms of how they each adapt to their own bodies, because Millie, as uh, the butcher, sort of underestimates her own strength and size and physicality and eventually sort of, you know, comes into her own a little bit more with that as the film goes on. And uh, the butcher, as Millie, um, utilises that sort of, as you say, Ben, they keep underestimating her. And eventually she starts utilising that for her kills as the movie progresses as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's smart. So we, we, we're not discomfited in any way by the moral murkiness of this, that we are essentially rooting for the butcher to off these people in Millie's name. Well, it's like a hyper-reality, isn't it? It's riffing off the very worst versions of people. I mean, we say the school bullies, they're not only school bullies, they're leches, you know? And and would be rapists as well. Yes, exactly. So that's kind of riffing off the, you know, the, the darker fabric of of not just adolescence, but like being a young woman, full stop. It um, yeah. it taps into that quite inherently. But then also, you know, there's the the kill with the hook, which is um, the homophobic jock who turns out to be gay. And then what I really enjoy about that trope, because I'm sick of seeing it, is when, you know, the, the bullied kid and the bully end up, you know, falling for each other. And But in this case, the bully gets just, you know, killed with a hook. And I think that's just such a great way of saying, yeah, no, we're sick of that trip too, to the point we're just going to kill him, like, horribly and quickly, which is really fun. So, yeah, rooting rooting for him because it is a hyper-reality, because it is. And I mean, if anything, if we're going to get into this, this is part of the way we watch horror, isn't it? It's for catharsis. It's to take this real heightened version of reality and kind of kind of live through that in, in visceral means. Basically, none of you should ever cross me. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting that. This is, from, this is why sure. I specifically did this on Squadcast rather than getting us into a room. Your reputation precedes you, killer web. Bloodbeth. That's my Twitter Halloween name. <laughs> I think part of, of the formula as well is that these characters, again, not condoning murder, but these characters who get killed off, like, put themselves in that position. They sort of cross Millie first, while not knowing that it's the butcher in her body, and they set themselves up for that murder. So I guess that's a switch as well. It, when the body swap happens, the butcher is kind of going out of his way trying to find teenagers up to no good in a big fancy house to kill. But when the swap happens, it's like these characters who cross who they think is Millie's path kind of, yeah, wrong her in those moments and, and sort of set up why that character should be avenged. And I think that's that's part of the sort of moral fabric of the film is that they are sort of hoisted on their own petard, but this petard is a chainsaw or a rusty hook. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cross Ben either is another <laughs> message to take away from this. I'm a warm, cuddly bear, just to, <laughs> just to say, you know, I will not kill you. Maybe maiming, but, you know. A bit of light maiming never hurt anyone. <laughs> Here's another question about all the murders that Millie as the butcher, or the butcher as Millie, commits, right? Millie's DNA and fingerprints are going to be all over these crime scenes. So do we think that ultimately Millie's going to go to prison for the crimes perpetrated by the butcher in the darker movie 
Yes, but <laughs> I don't think the tone of this movie fits with that ending. Yeah, I think if you're going to be smart, a smart Alec, then yeah, that's what's going to happen. If you're going to inject like well, real... No, Beth, I, I fully agree with you. Whatever you say. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> underestimate Beth. Okay. Nobody likes a smart Alec, Chris. Do you want to know what happened to the last smart Alec? I'm like sharpening a knife under the desk here. Um, but no, I, I mean... Yes, if we're going to pick holes, yeah, she probably will go to prison. The cops, those two sort yeah. of duddy cops and then her very smart sister cop will probably, yeah, dust it mm. for fingerprints. I mean, in a dream scenario, her sister will outsmart everybody, dust down the fingerprints, find out what's happened, cover up her sister's crimes as as the killer. and then Multiple crimes, multiple yeah. Multiple crimes. And then, you yeah. know, orchestrate her escape. <laughs> it's what, you know, what would happen if we're going down the realism Sort of and then mission. they get trapped in a, in a time loop yeah. and then it's a crossover with Happy Death Day, which is <laughs> the one we all want. <laughs> in a similar vein to sort of the whole, you know, injecting realism into a sort of hyper-reality, there's the whole question of how Millie as the butcher knew <laughs> apparently enough about female fashion to pick out a whole wardrobe and do the whole makeup and come into school looking... Come the way on. she does. Yeah, Vince Vaughn could apply a lip, man. Like that was a <laughs> that was a flawless application. Good for him. But on the other hand, I would counter that by saying that there are some really well thought out details to the body swap that I haven't seen before, like Millie coming to terms with the fact that Vince Vaughn is really tall, as we were saying, like over six foot. And there's just this wonderful little moment where she runs into a just a low hanging branch. It's not even very dramatic <laughs> or horrifying. There's just one of those thoughtful little moments where she doesn't think and she just goes face first into a branch. Probably the least traumatic thing that happens in that entire film. But it, it, it really lends to the, that concept so wonderfully. And those things are really well thought out and played out just a light comedic effect which all builds into a, a bigger effective um, picture, I think. But I, I love stuff like that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, in the history of body swap movies, not just comedies, I'm struggling to think of too many that do the male-female swap. There aren't that many. So if you're thinking of the thing of big... There's the Channing Tatum. It's a boy-girl thing. There we go. I think the I think the Jumanji movies have done it a couple of times recently. Yeah, the Jumanji movies play with that and they play with race as well and they play with, with, with gender and you know, they're sort of having a bit of fun there. Your Name, the animated film, does the uh, boy-girl body Which one? Uh, Your Name, the animated film, the Japanese oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. film, does yeah. the uh, boy-girl and there's, um, body swap. One of my favourite films, The Hidden, the Karl McLaughlin alien movie, which is about an alien... A baddie alien that, that possesses people that goes inside their bodies and, and moves from body to body. And so at a certain point, he gets he ends up inside the, the body of an exotic dancer. But I can't really think of too many that explore it in this way. There's All of Me, uh, of course, as well. The Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin comedy where she possesses one half of his body, um, which is really fun. If you've never seen All of Me, check it out. Uh, <laughs> tremendous Steve Martin, Carl Reiner comedy. There's an amazing bit of physical comedy where he's walking down the street and he's just, she's not letting one half of his body move. And he's got to, he's got to try and make drag her half of his body with him. It's really, really great. Uh, but apart from that, I can't really think of too many, apart from the 17 we've mentioned, explore <laughs> this side of things. And you're right, Beth, it has, it has a lot of fun with that, but there's also some really pointed exploration going on here as well. And, you know, it, which leads up to the scene with Booker and Millie as the butcher in the back of the car. 
And you know, I, I think I think we mentioned it in the, uh, in the interview with Christopher Landon, but both Christopher Landon and his co-writer Michael Kennedy are gay, and they very much approach this movie from a from a queer viewpoint as well, which I think is is really interesting. What what do you make of of that aspect of the movie and that, and that scene in particular? I thought that scene was brilliant. Um, probably the best scene in the movie. Like, <laughs> if if I had come out of Freaky and told somebody who hadn't seen it that. 50-year-old Vince Vaughn kissed a high school boy and it was awesome. They probably look at me like, what in the hell is wrong with you? But it is awesome and it really, really works. And I think in large part, that's because they, you know, Vince Vaughn in particular really commits to the role to the point where you forget that he is a 50-year-old man and you fully believe that that this is just sort of Millie in a bigger body. And yeah, I think it works on all facets. It's, you know, touching... Uh, it's funny that, that line. Like, maybe you should wait, you know, until my hand is not bigger than your whole face, which is great. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, it's a brilliant scene. Loved it. I think this is something that Christopher Landon does really, really well. And the things that really stick with a lot of his films is the, the horror stuff is always really well done. The comedy stuff really lands, but he sneaks in these moments where it goes for a sincere moment and in among the madness of everything it really works um i know beth there was a scene that really worked for you in happy death day 2 where it's about kind of loss and grieving somebody and kind of um what what world you choose to live in and i think there's a similar moment here in the changing room in the, in the shop uh, you get a sequence mm-hmm. like that as well but also in the car that moment in the car i think it's great that you've got filmmakers like christopher landon making these sorts of films because you think about a decade ago the way that that would have been played it would have been played purely for like a gross out moment mm-hmm. and it really doesn't go for that and it, it yes it leans into the comedy of it because it is a, a, as as a monster it's, a, a it's an inherently setup. comedic it's an inherently process yeah. comedic <laughs> setup but it doesn't play it for gross out laughs really and it it sticks the landing of the sweetness of the relationship of these two characters Mm -hmm. and isn't afraid to kind of transcend some of those boundaries that have been kind of pretty entrenched in uh, in cinema for a long time i think that speaks to this film being a film that comes out in in 2020 or 2021 that I, i think gen z is much more used to growing up with films that will play that scene out and and play it in its fullness and lean into the sweetness of it. And I think cinema is going to be richer for uh, filmmakers like Christopher Landon. Yeah. Properly leaning into that. This is one of the most progressive movies of recent times in a very subtle way too. I like that. Such a good sequence. Um, There's a, there's a tremendous moment in it where Booker, (laughs) Booker gets out of the front of the car and moves to the back. And as he's moving to the back, Fince does Fince like he's my mate. Uh, Fawn does this little "Oh my god" kind of, <laughs> kind of expression, as if like "Oh my god, this thing is this thing that I've been wanting to happen for a long time is going to happen right now." And it doesn't matter that I'm in the body of a six foot five inch, two hundred and fifty pound serial killer. I'm going, I'm going to seize the day and yeah. go for it. It's, it's such a sweet moment. It's so it's so layered that performance because there are so many opportunities for him to really lean into the comedy or really seek laughs in moments that are instead incredibly tender, like when he recites the poem that Millie has left in the locker for Booker. And that's um, her way of proving to him that she is who she says she is. And this really heartfelt and sweet 
delivery of a poem that she's written for him. And it could be fun to sort of, he could be forgiven for playing for a few laughs, you know, an occasional kind of wink and and whatnot. But he really does keep that straight face, keeps a, a level gaze with Booker and, and actually, yeah, delivers this very, very sweet mesmeric delivery. I want to see him play at, at high school all the time. Like he's really, <laughs> he's really wonderful in this. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right as well to point out that um, Christopher Landon has explored similar impactful themes in his previous movies. You're feeling, you know, there's, there's this theme of, this recurring theme throughout his work of, of grief and parental loss. And for people who don't know, Christopher Landon's father was Michael Landon, who was the star of Little House in the Prairie and Highway to Heaven, uh, who passed away whenever Christopher was, I think, 12, I think, and around, around that. And when I interviewed Landon recently for the magazine, he told me also that Michael Kennedy had just lost his father just before they started writing this movie. So this is clearly something that runs all the way through this movie. It's something that Millie's trying to come to terms with, the impact that the loss of their father off screen has had on Char and on the, the mother character as well is is palpable. Yeah, now um, just to return to that scene again for a second, I love how it underlines that with Booker and Millie, their love for each other is more based on interior stuff rather than exterior stuff. And there has been a sort of a school of thought in discussing in discussing Freaky that has said that Captain Newton is too pretty to be in this role. But that scene alone, I think, disproves that because it's all about the interior sort of aspect of their love. And that love is love regardless of what people look like on the exterior. And yeah, it's just another reason why I love that scene. The parental stuff is... I mean, as you said, Ben, that's what I really, really liked about Happy, the, the Death Day films, which I maintain, are, I think they're my favourite Blumhouse films. They really, really are hard to beat. It's ve- obviously a very expansive production house, but like, I think certainly within that 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 sort of strand of genre, they're so good. But I think they do handle that. And in just the most singular scenes as well. So in this instance it's really captured in the dressing room scene where Vince Vaughan is having kind of a confessional conversation with Millie's mum, who's played by Katie Finneran, obviously, who is... Um, Paula. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead, she was in. So that little... Again, I love these little kind of breadcrumbs of, of horror that are scattered <laughs> throughout them as well. It's wonderful. But yeah, they have a a very, very sweet moment where she's kind of confiding in him, a stranger, while he's hiding out in a changing room. And being able to confide in a stranger obviously gives her this freedom to work through the emotional moments that she hasn't been able to share with her kids because she has to maintain this matriarchal position in the house, even though she's clearly not coping very well. She's drinking a lot. And it's just a touching scene. It's it's sort of touched on later on, but it doesn't need to be because the strength of that and it doesn't overshadow the, the horror and the comedy, but just it's it's just sort of planted in there and, and brings another layer to this very, very rich fabric that they, they really are so skilled at weaving those things in and just keeping that tone just so throughout it's it's lovely and i think having that serious stuff as a bit of a baseline also just makes the comedy and the horror stuff pop more it doesn't clash mm. with those tones it just accentuates them if anything I, I think that's really really well handled across all three of those films but i think it especially in freaky as well i think it's just a really well written script i love scripts that, are, that mm. feel very very thought through we can feel the craftsmanship behind it. There's an awful lot of setups 
established very early on that pay off, you know, Booker's advice to Millie about setting the phone five minutes fast. You're always, you know, essentially on time that I, I know people who do that and somehow it works for them. But if I did that, I would adjust in my head. I'd be like, yeah. well, yep. it's it's not 12 <laughs> o'clock. It's 11.55. So I, I can still goof around and then I'll be late as I, as I usually <laughs> am. But there's lots of little you setups and payoffs. You were early today. You were on time today, Chris. I appreciated that. I was actually two minutes late, but, uh, <laughs> but technically speaking for me, that is early. <laughs> but, but yeah, I thought it was a really, really well-written script as well. What do we think of the sidekick characters? So you have Misha Osherovich as Josh and Celeste O'Connor as, as Nyla. What do we make of, of those characters? I kind of thought they were fun, but wanted a bit more from them. I thought Nyla especially didn't make as much of an impact and and there's lots going on really it, it the whole thing centers around Millie and the butcher um and and then Booker really is the sort of third part of that weird triangle <laughs> Booker but- Booker <laughs> Booker <laughs> Oh my god Catherine Newton's so great in those moments really really great because that's the thing as well she's not just playing both of those parts then she ends up playing the butcher playing Millie at points as well the layers yeah. Of, yeah. of performance there are so much fun but yeah, I think those side characters are maybe the the one point of the film for me that felt uh, a little bit thinner. I think Josh gets more to do, and uh, I really enjoyed that performance. And and it is funny because they're poking fun at all the tropes. Uh, that line that he's where he's like, "Oh, you're black, I'm gay, we're dead." Like it plays with those things in a in a fun way. But um, I think because Millie feels so fleshed out, and you have those really interesting moments with the butcher and booker i then think those sidekick characters don't quite get that moment where they become more than funny sidekicks yeah i get why they had to have that that you're black i'm gay we're both dead joke in a movie like this but that's my least favorite joke in the movie by far but luckily he gets one of the best he anchors one of the best set pieces in the film which is when millie Butcher is tied to the chair and he has to pretend to his mum that he's straight and she she just sees through his bullshit immediately. <laughs> you are many things, but <laughs> you are not straight. So that that's fun. That that aspect of it. Um it yeah. really comes into play there. Yeah. I do wonder as well though if if both of these writers as well relish the chance to get to write a teenage character who is Who's openly out and gay proud. and out yeah. and proud, mm-hmm. and is it will very happily lean into that rather than that being anything that they're kind of self conscious about. I, I sort of, yeah. um, I think there is maybe context there in terms of the filmmakers behind this of why that role maybe f- has more of a purpose or a point to to the way that that character is characterized. Whereas I think in other hands it it could read as as thinner than that. Anything else you want to talk about? Any standout scenes? Any standout moments? Anything we haven't mentioned thus far? Can I just say this film made me laugh before it basically even really began? Because you go into this knowing <laughs> the concept, knowing the body swap, knowing the Friday the Thirteenth reference. So when it opens with a title card that says Wednesday the Eleventh, I was already laughing. <laughs> I fucking love that. <laughs> The, pre- the the Friday the Thirteenth title drop was, was great. I like I like that. It was fantastic. Was cool. um, I just wanted to bring up the final fight between yes. um, mother and two daughters and Vince Vaughn now as the butcher. This like wonderful intergenerational takedown and a fantastic fucking final line from um, Catherine Newton where she's like, "You know what? I am a fucking piece." And then it goes to black. I think it's just. <laughs> 
every <laughs> that is just the final that is the the flourish <laughs> the delivery the lights out um but that is that's a really fun set piece in in the horror yeah. vein of yeah. of what happens and it still manages to be very funny and a great death for Vince Vaughn as well the final kick of this stake as it goes out through him and out the other side properly is is gloriously good fun i loved it this is the one thing i do remember chris from the spoiler special interview it's all flooding back to me um <laughs> talking about this with uh, christopher landon and he's talking about the fact that they really really fought for this ending so that millie defeats the butcher in her own body that yeah. it doesn't just end with them swapping back that she gets the chance to triumph as herself and the way that this scene plays out with the three generations of women fighting back against a crazy serial killer in a Blumhouse movie it, this is a comedy-ish version of the Halloween 2018 Halloween. Uh, <laughs> film yeah yeah <laughs> uh, I remember feeling that when I when I first watched it and I still stand by that comparison those three kind of yeah fighting back against this killer that's true and of course the the butcher you know because we we only hear him speak as as Millie we, we see him in the, in, the, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, he doesn't speak at all. Then when Millie wakes up, when he wakes up in Millie's body, he doesn't speak, I think, until he gets to the school. And I think the first thing he says is, fuck off, uh, which is very much in, in keeping. And then, of course, he turns up at Millie's house at the end and you can't shut him up. He goes full Vince Vaughn and swingers. You know, he's so money, baby. This is the thing. They are both changed by the experience, Chris, from being in each other's bodies. It's not just that, that trade isn't just one way. Yeah, um, no, that's fair. That is fair. Do we think he's done? We, okay, so the harsh reality is that this movie didn't do as well as it should have done at the box office because of the global pandemic. So I'm not sure whether it did the numbers. Maybe it's one of those movies that will find its audience over time and things like you know, home entertainment release and, and streaming. You know, you can rent it on Sky and iTunes, various platforms right now. So maybe in time a sequel may happen along but do you think it should or do you think this is a good thing of one and done do you think the the butcher might recover from that sucking chest wound and and wreak havoc for another day what, what, what? the butcher is done finished kaput yeah. i do not want to see him again the knife is still out there <gasps> and there are other serial killers i'm sure lying in wait there it wouldn't take much to craft a story around you know a fresh person and then sort of you know maybe in the final sort of scene of that bring Millie back into it and like, you know, again create this Avengers sort of team of I don't know I'm just spitting <laughs> the Avengers but they're all serial killers what do you why do you want this I'm on <laughs> now you're talking but Avengers but they're all sort of horror heroines who take down serial killers that I would watch the, the whole serial killer avenging no I don't no no none of that um <laughs> but uh but yeah the butcher himself is done like a really satisfying death scene I don't need to see Vince Vaughn in this franchise again. Sorry. All right. Okay. And I think if you do something more with this, that the concept of it is so strong that you have to do what they did with Happy Death Day to you and find a way to extrapolate that idea further. You can't just do the same thing again. You have to find something that's equally playful. And I don't quite know what that is, but I'm not as smart as Christopher Landon and Michael Kennedy. So if they have a really cool idea of how you escalate this, how you kind of add some other other element to this body swap that yeah. then ups the stakes mm -hmm. i would love to see that but if they don't have that hamsters <laughs> <laughs> what 
robots. Hamsters. Well, hamsters. I mean, it still blows my mind. I don't want to turn this into a Jumanji the next level spoiler special, but <laughs> what happens with one of the characters in that film still blows yeah. my mind that that's the way a character yeah. arc played out. Um, so weird, like a mainstream movie uh, would end with a character basically having sex with themselves. Oh, sorry, wait, I'm thinking of the wrong movie. But yes, yeah, that's okay. not what I was thinking of. But it's, it's not <laughs> much less weird. Different movie. But mm. if, if they don't have an idea of how to specifically escalate the, the sort of body swap thing, I would love just to see what other kind of genre mashup they come up with of something mm-hmm. uh, smashed up with a, a, a slasher movie. And of course, happy death day to us. We're still waiting. I still, I'm, I'm, I'm still holding out hope for and, for part three. Mm-hmm. There was talk, wasn't there, about a crossover that they could do that could somehow get you know Tree from Happy Death Day, and somehow you fit them into this world. You know, the, the, the dollar might be knocking around somewhere, and that might somehow find us into a time loop. Who, who knows? I mean, who knows? it all sounds great, but if you heard what his next project is, Christopher Landon's. Yes. Yes, I'm just the synopsis for this. A man claims to have befriended. A mostly harmless ghost who bears a likeness to actor Ernest Borgnine and becomes famous <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> See, I, wow. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Anthony Mackie's <laughs> in it. David Harbour's mm-hmm. in it. Coolidge is mm-hmm. in it. Jennifer Coolidge. I love Death Day, but pause that for this film. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think this is um, going to be like a sort of spooky, family-friendly comedy sort of thing. It's coming to <gasps> Netflix. Um, sounds like a really interesting bit. I know something, I can't remember which interview of the many interviews we've done, Chris, but there was one interview with Christopher Landon that I thought was really interesting where he talked about the Amblin influence. And I do think even when he's in full on horror mode, I do think you feel that even in Freaky, there is it has almost that feeling yeah. of Back to the Future, the race against time element, the school setting how kind of playful it is tonally that yeah. a- across his last three films especially I do think you feel that Amblin influence and yeah I think his next film sounds like it might be even more of a, a sort of family friendly Amblin riff absolutely it's it's definitely here in Freaky because the the butcher uh, he's not running he's Amblin <laughs> Oh. We'd nearly made anyway. it home and dry. <laughs> the kebab I'll, I'll take. A... <laughs> oh, I'll take a kebab. <laughs> oh, well. If anyone's offering, donor meat and chips, please. Thank you very much. Chili sauce, bit of lettuce. Thank you. Boom. <laughs> I have a couple more freaky things I would like to mention. How freaky? <laughs> They're about a seven on the freaky scale out of ten. So, yeah, there's a line by a cop uh, which really made me laugh. A suspect spotted in the shit heap, which I thought was great. So, yeah, wanted to shout out that. And also, uh, the composer, Bear McCreary, uh, who I'm a big fan of, he did one of the Godzillas. Uh, he did the God of War game, which will mean nothing to you, but if people played that game, they'll realize that the score for that is amazing. And he did it. He also did the score for this. And it's really, really good. It's got a lot of different vibes, and he switches tones uh, very carefully and very seamlessly, which really as to the film as a whole. So mm. on to give that some love to. Especially impressive when you consider he's a bear. <laughs> and those guys usually aren't musical at all. So silly. So silly. <laughs> <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm 
being, I'm being, I'm being chided once again by Beth. I've been, I've been a smart aleck. Yeah. I better, I better run for my life. I'm off to the the witness protection program. Sharpening the knife <laughs> under the desk. Uh, on that note, on that uh, berry note, I think it, that is it. That is it for our freaky spoiler special. Hope you guys enjoyed it half as much as we did recording it which means you will have not enjoyed it very much at all uh, <laughs> our next spoiler special I mean Christ pick one there's <laughs> after we're recording this we're doing four in a row tomorrow so it'll be one of The Green Knight Venom Let There Be Carnage The Last Jewel or Halloween Kills I'm genuinely going to get those mixed up it'll be The Last <laughs> Venom Let There Be Halloween you know <laughs> The Green Jewel. Halloween Carnage. <laughs> the Green Jewel. Halloween Carnage is actually a pretty good name for That's it. That's uh, cracking, actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And Let There Be Kills. Well, why not? Why the devil not? So any of those will be up for your listening pleasure at some point in the next couple of days as well. Uh, regular podcast is out every single Friday. Of course, if you don't already listen to that and subscribe, then we would be delighted if you could do so. And I thank you, as ever, for subscribing to the spoiler specials. Uh, it really does mean a lot. But anyway, until we meet again in whatever form that is until then until that auspicious occasion it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names freaky wednesday because we're recording this on a wednesday no we're not it's tuesday it's tuesday i'm on oh. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic oh my god wow oh, <laughs> His shame is complete. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Try and style this one out now. Yeah, go, on, go on, say peace. Go on, say peace. All I'm going to say is... <laughs> You're an embarrassment. Scared the Cats United. Album dropping soon. The first single is Why Didn't You Run? The second single is You're So Dumb. Probably referring to me with this stupid squad cast name. Anyway, <laughs> peace. It is goodbye from a man woman. It is also goodbye from... Bum house. Let's really <laughs> setting the tone nice and early. Beth Webb. Hello. Bum house. It's a real crazy show. It's a it's a it's a quiz. It's a race. You remember the theme tune? It's like use your body and your brain, brain if you, you want to play, play the, the game. game. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what a serial killer would say. <laughs> By the way. Oh, anyway. Speaking of theme tunes, I've got Ben the Butcher uh, in Can my we kill him? Ben the Butcher <laughs> No, you can't No, damn it, damn it. Our podcast does not condone murder I keep forgetting, I keep forgetting uh, It is goodbye from Ben the Butcher himself Benjamin Travis Ha ha, this is the point where I reveal I've been Beth Webb all along Never underestimate me, people Never underestimate me That explains a lot, actually I'm rethinking the entire podcast <laughs> Hang on, if Ben has been Beth and Beth has been Amon and then she's been sabotaging you with this dreadful name that you got completely wrong, then who the hell am I? Who's been in me? Who has been in me? Who who would like... No, okay, that's... <laughs> anyway, uh, this goodbye from me. I'll buy that for La Dolla. That's a Robocop reference there. Oh, Lord. Thank you so much for listening. I'm off to go full kebab. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.